I want to let you know that I really wrestled with this passage this whole week, and um, it's a difficult passage. You know, I guess if you're, if you're preaching on subjects, you have the, the gift of being able to hop around and maybe skip over some more difficult passages. Um, but if you're preaching through the Bible or you're preaching through the Gospels or preaching through a book, you don't have that luxury and, and you have to deal with Scripture as it comes. And I think that's probably a, a better way to study Scripture, but it doesn't necessarily mean it makes it any easier. Um, so as I was looking at this, I was just thinking, man, this is going to be a really difficult message. And um, uh, with that being said, I want to convey not my thoughts, my ideas, but uh, I have a commitment before you and before God to present scripture for what it says and, and not try to explain it away or skip over it, but, but let what it says stand and for us to determine what, what God's heart is in it and then for us to conform more our thoughts to his thoughts and try to understand what he's saying to us. So um, let's go ahead and get into this. Um, last Sunday, we had looked at Jesus raising Lazarus back from the dead uh, amid the, the questions and the fears and the doubts and, of those around him. And this week, uh, as I've looked at delays and funny timing of events, I've been reminded about Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus and that in that love, he delayed coming to them two days. And I hope that you too have been encouraged in Jesus' love for you even as you experience uh, delays and timing that's inconvenient and or even painful. After Jesus raised Lazarus, John informs us that the religious leaders got really serious about seeking his life. And as a result, Jesus could no longer walk in public. He was a dead man wanted, a public enemy number one. And John lets us know that, that Jesus then retreated to the city of Ephraim, a, a small city in the hilly country just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Ephraim was most likely the modern-day Palestinian city of Taibeh, which is about nine miles north of Jerusalem near Ramallah. But before Jesus arrived at Ephraim, either uh, right after raising Lazarus, as my chronological Bible puts it, or possibly shortly before he raised Lazarus, which is, I believe, the pro more probable scenario, he was then approached by the Pharisees in Matthew 19.3 with a question concerning divorce. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Uh, just recently, Jesus had brought up the subject of divorce in Luke 16, 18, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And uh, he had said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, as I had mentioned, in context, Jesus wasn't really attempting to teach on divorce in that setting. Uh, his whole point was rather to show his relationship to God's law. And, and he was defending himself and saying that not only is he upholding God's law through, through Moses, but that he actually stands for an even higher standard of, of God's law. Um, the law allows for divorce, but Jesus uh, was, was saying that it's actually committing adultery when you divorce. The context in Luke was money management uh, with the implied application being that the law permits giving 10% to the Lord, but the idea was that 10% is only a reminder of the higher standard that all 100% actually belong to him. Now, whether those listening to him at that time or not really understood the correlation that Jesus was presenting, either way, what he said about divorce was shocking. 
it, it had to have been completely shocking to most of the listeners. I'd mentioned that during that time, one of the rabbinical teachers, Hillel, taught that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his dinner or put too much salt in his soup. But there was also another teacher during this time, Shammai, that held an opposing, stricter view of marriage who permitted divorce only in cases of infidelity and adultery. And perhaps what the religious leaders were tending to do was to trap Jesus in siding with one rabbinical teaching or the other, and, or perhaps to catch him in retracting his previous statement on divorce, or maybe catch him speaking contrary to what the law of Moses was what had, what had dictated. It seems that at that time, the, the issue of divorce was a, a popular hot topic. Uh, but what's wild is that perhaps the thinking of that day is maybe not so different than the thinking of today. You know, some would advocate for divorce no matter what the reason, uh, unhappiness, uh, un offenses, or not getting along. But then there's others who would strictly advocate for not getting a divorce at, at whatever cost, with, with exception to a few circumstances. So the real question is, what does the Bible teach concerning divorce? Now I realize that this could be a painful subject for many, so it's with great humility and, and sensitivity that I hope to engage in, again, not what I think on this subject, but rather what the Bible says concerning this subject. And as with any biblical passage that we read, my hope is that we're able to first understand God's perspective, secondly, compare that with our perspective, and then thirdly, attempt to align our perspective to his perspective. So with that purpose in mind, let's see what Jesus has to say about divorce in Matthew 19, verses four and following. So to their question, he, he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, we'll stop there. Um, Jesus mentions two verses from the book of Genesis. Uh, the first being Genesis 1.27 that says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the second verse is Genesis 2.24, which states, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And from these two verses, one could build the argument that God intended uh, creation, that he created the human race as, as binary, as male and female, two distinct entities. He didn't create two gender-neutral persons who would one day decide what sex they would prefer to be. You could also build the case that marriage is intended between one male and one female, not between two males or two females, nor between one male and several females, or between one female and several males. Uh, all of that is implied through these two verses in Genesis, but the thrust of Jesus' argument is that once one male and one female come together, the two should not be separated. Now to this answer, the religious leaders countered in verse seven. They said, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They were referencing a passage in Deuteronomy 24, one through four, and I think it's important that we take the time to look back and read that passage so that we can understand exactly what they were referencing. So put a placeholder in Matthew, and if you'd like, turn back with me to Deuteronomy 24, 
Deuteronomy 24, and it's verses one through four. This is Moses um, after he's come down from the mountain with the tablets and he's reading the law to the people that God had given him. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now the first thing I believe that we need to notice in this passage is that Moses nowhere commands anyone to give someone a certificate of divorce. Obviously, the giving of a certificate of divorce was a common practice, and regardless of it being a wrong practice, Moses does mention it, and he's, he's regulating that practice. He basically says that when this custom that is, is wrong takes place, uh, then it's also wrong to do this. Uh, Moses isn't saying that... Uh, it's, he's not necessarily approving of divorce, and nor is he commanding a divorce letter. What Moses is commanding is that a man who divorces his wife cannot later remarry her after she's been with another man. That is what this passage is conveying. The thrust of this passage is not advocating for divorce as the religious leaders were attempting to, to portray it. In contrast, the passage is actually further supporting the case that divorce and remarriage should not happen and is wrong. Why do I say this? Look at the reason in verse four why the man can't take the woman back and remarry her after she's been with another man. The reason is because her union with the other man has defiled her. The idea is that divorce should not happen, but if one chooses to go against God's design and divorces their spouse in remarriage, one then becomes defiled, unholy, sinful in God's eyes. Yet even in that sin, there's still a new covenant that is formed. And it would add yet another sin to then break that second covenant of marriage in order to return to the first covenant of marriage. Even if forming the second covenant of marriage was a sin, the universal application is that God's standard is so high and if you miss it, don't try to correct it by adding yet an additional sin. Have you ever seen a, a movie or TV show where the, the hitman or assassin, he's convicted and he wants to get out of his line of work, yet in order to do so, he has to go even further and kill even more people? Moses is saying, don't do that, all right? If you sin, live with the consequences and don't go deeper and sin further. So Moses didn't command a certificate of divorce and thus support divorce as the religious leaders were attempting to convey, but in the wording of this passage in Deuteronomy, he doesn't necessarily forbid divorce either. Now he could have based on the, the Genesis verses that Jesus referenced, but instead, as we've covered, he offered a command not to sin further if divorce had already occurred. And this is basically how Jesus refers to the counter argument back in Matthew. If you can turn back with me back to the passage in Matthew, 19 verse 8 
Jesus replies to him, he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, in other words, because of your sin, because of your rejection of God's design, Moses then permitted you to divorce your wives. In other words, he didn't attempt to punish those who had divorced, but he overlooked and he permitted their perversion of God's intent. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. God's intent, his, his design, his standard of, standard of holiness from the beginning of time that does not change is for divorce not to happen. Verse nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now here's the crucial verse that I think that we need to understand. When Jesus has spoken on this just recently before, as I'd mentioned in the passage of Luke 16, 18, he had said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. It was period, end of sentence, uh, no exceptions. In, this sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, he had said it like this. He said, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So many take the exception clause of that uh, the, the unchastity from the Sermon on the Mount and the exception clause of immorality from this passage in Matthew 19, uh, they take those verses to mean that the only permissible divorce is one that results from an adulterous act. Now this is a widely held view uh, from even many evangelical Christians, but just because it is a common viewpoint does not necessarily mean that that is the correct viewpoint. Matthew 5:32. In 19.9, they used two different Greek words that we need to understand. The word porneia, which translates to fornication or unchastity, which is an unmarried person engaging in sexual activity, sexual immorality. And the other Greek word is moikaia, which translates into the word adultery, a married person engaging in sexual activity, sexual immorality outside of the marriage. The exception verses that I mentioned here, they both say you, the exception is if porneia is committed, that is the exception. Everything else is mokaia, adultery. Uh, there is a, a reason for divorce and that is unchastity, uh, fornication, sexual immorality. Now that we've defined these words using these two exception clauses, we also need to understand the Jewish culture and their custom of marriage during this time. A young boy and a young girl would be betrothed, they'd be promised to each other by their parents. This was the first step in their betrothal, or as we would more commonly say now, engagement. The second step would occur much later as they became adults and uh, there would be, they would enter into a more formal wedding planning uh, this second period would usually happen one year before the marriage date. And during this time, the couple would then consider themselves husband and wife, yet not living together and not having a sexual relationship with the punishment for engaging in sexual activity being stoning. Now, the second period of betrothal is where Mary and Joseph were. If you remember, when, when Joseph found Mary to be pregnant, it was obviously assumed that she had broken their betrothal period uh, 
by fornication, the, the Greek word mokaia, engaging in sexual activity before being married. And so we have the verse in Matthew 1.19 that says, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. The Greek word used for send her away is the same root word used for divorce in the passage that we're reading this morning in Matthew 19. Joseph and Mary, they weren't married yet, uh, yet they still referred to each other as husband and wife and could righteously divorce each other before their official wedding day if one was found to be sexually active before that day. I believe that this is the exception that Matthew 5.32, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and our passage this morning, 19.9, is referring to. If during the engagement process you find that your fiancé has been unchaste, has committed fornication, sexual immorality, then you can righteously divorce yourself from them. In doing so, you don't make your soon-to-be spouse commit adultery. No, they have already committed adultery themselves before you were even officially married. Matthew 5.32 and 19.9 do not say if your spouse commits adultery, then you can divorce them. The word used is not adultery. The Bible uses the word fornication and unchastity, words that mean sexual activity before marriage and therefore only, the only divorce permissible be, would be one that occurs in a Mary and Joseph type situation, a divorce during the engagement time. But actually there is another ex exception mentioned in the Bible that would allow one to be free to pursue another relationship after being married. Paul gives marriage instructions in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39 it says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, so here's the other exception, death, right? To death do us part. If a spouse dies, the remaining spouse is free to remarry and it's not considered adultery. This is confirmed by Romans 7, 2 through 3. It says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, most Christians nowadays generally don't view marriage and divorce under such strict terms. But I would argue that this is the position of Jesus. I think the disciples understood the, the weight of what Jesus was saying, that, that divorce was not permissible under any circumstances with exception to the engagement betrothal period, and that remarriage is not permissible under any circumstances with the exception of a spouse's death. I believe they understood the strictness that Jesus was referring, judging from the response in verse 10, look, the disciple said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. If death is the only grounds for remarrying and divorce is not an option to pursue once you are officially married, then perhaps it's better not to attempt to get married at all. To which Jesus responds in verse 11 and 12, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, now this is a little graphic and I apologize, but there are boys born without uh, certain male anatomy who have birth defects. 
And throughout history, and still in some parts of the world, male servants are castrated. And there are others yet to, in a sense, become eunuchs, not by physical castration, but in practice, who choose not to get married, who choose not to procreate, but rather to to serve the Lord as a, a single person. But Jesus says this is not for everyone. And this is only for those who have been given the the gift of singleness, the gift to remain single and focus purely on the Lord without having to wrestle with balancing, uh, uh, serving a family as well. In this passage, Jesus seems to bring his arguments for the highest view of marriage to a climax. You, You marry to be married for life or you don't marry and you serve the Lord as a single for life. But dabbling in both is not permissible. So if the Bible teaches that divorce is only permissible during the engagement period and that remarriage is only permissible after the death of a spouse, then what should one do who is already divorced and remarried? Well, according to what it looks like, the Bible says the, the second marriage was considered adultery if the former spouse was still living. But now that it is done, it should not be undone. Repentance and consecration of a new marriage Jesus is yet to Jesus, uh, yes, but breaking that covenant, even if it was conceived at first by the Bible's definition of adultery, it is still a covenant and should not be subject to further covenant breaking, as we saw in the passage of Deuteronomy. Well, what about those who, who had a spouse leave them, who, who disagreed wholeheartedly with divorce? Or what about a couple who, where one spouse is following the Lord and the other isn't? Look, at me, look with me at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Again, you might want to put a placeholder and turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 10, Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So far, Paul says, do not leave or divorce, but if one does end up leaving, it should just be for a period without remarrying or for a period without remarrying to then be reconciled to the spouse. Then he continues, verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Okay, so now Paul is saying this is not what God says, but this is his advice that if a believer with an unbeliever, uh, they should remain married. He continues, verse 14. If the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now in saying that Uh, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing spouse, Paul is definitely not saying that an unbeliever is considered saved if they're married to a believer. Rather, the word sanctified is probably referring to the marriage union being still set apart as being sanctified, a, a holy union that can still bring glory to God and that a spouse isn't defiled through sexual relationships with their non-believing spouse. And and nor will the kids somehow be tainted and and doomed through the unity of the two. Now listen to what he says about an unbelieving spouse who's determined to leave. Verse 15. 
Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? That Paul is saying that if the unbelieving spouse is determined to leave, then it's better to let them leave than to attempt to force them to stay and thus create unrest. Because in attempting to force them to stay, you really don't know if that will result in them coming to the, know the Lord or not. So should someone whose spouse left them remarry? Well, again, from what we've read today, it, it looks like the Bible says no. That only in the death of a spouse can one remarry without committing adultery. Your marriage covenant should be kept even if your spouse chooses to break it. Why is the Bible so hard-nosed on this? I believe that perhaps it's because human marriage is the institution that God has chosen to represent his covenant relationship with his people. One man, one woman, one God, one people, established in permanence. He has an incredibly high standard of his relationship with us. And he wants human marriages to represent that high standard as well. To those of us who have missed the mark in this area, whether innocently or or non-innocently, this is not a time to to beat yourself up about the past. Uh, This is not a time to to be regretful. Uh, No, what I want you to do is just to realize God's high and perfect standard and for us all to conform our understanding uh, of divorce and, and marriage to his high standard. And for those who have been able to uphold God's intent for the sacredness of marriage, I'm sure we could find all other ways that we have missed the mark in other areas. In fact, many of us who haven't committed adultery through divorce and or remarriage have perhaps committed adultery by Jesus' definition of adultery in Matthew 5, 28, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you could switch out the pronouns and nouns there too. Everyone who looks at a man with lust for him. The point is, none of us are innocent. We have all fallen short of of God's glory in in one way or the other. And our duty as followers of Jesus is to uphold God's highest standard and to agree with what he deems right and wrong and not to just let society or, or anyone else water down our understanding of God's standard. To all of us who are married, whether for the first time or not, may we all realize the heaviness and the importance of our marriage relationship. May we understand what God desires in our marriages. May there not be any plan B's contemplated. Don't entertain thoughts of being with someone else. Don't let divorce be an option. Don't even let the suggestion come out of your mouth. Get rid of any type of involvement in pornography. Commit to be faithful and true no matter what your spouse does or doesn't do. To those divorced who haven't remarried, know how close God's heart is to you. May God provide for you in powerful ways. May you sense his love as a spouse who will never do you wrong and who will never leave you. To those not yet married, If you are seeking a spouse, do so with great consideration. 
do not take lightly the, the joining of a man and a woman. With a humble heart bowed before God, carefully listen to his voice and seek the spouse that he would have you to seek. And for all of us, may we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's bow our heads. Lord, as I've stated before, this is a really intense, heavy subject for me, and I I didn't necessarily like what I found in your word. But Lord, I'm not the one to judge your word. And, And I can see reasons why you would be so hard on this subject. I get it. I, it doesn't make it any easier, but, but I think I can understand your, your high calling and perfection for holiness. And, and Lord, I realize that not just in this area, but so many other areas, you're calling us to be, to be perfect. And you're saying, this is what I desire of you. And, and we miss that mark and, and we fail. And there's really tough situations that we're not sure. It's not so black and white. It's it's gray and there's all kinds of different elements and it's, it's really hard sometimes, Father. But Lord, I ask if anything that we would tend to err on siding with the strength and power of your word and attempt with all our might to do what you say to do no matter what the consequences. And Father, I pray that you would bless your people, that you would bless us for upholding and attempting to attain the high standard that you have for us. Not that we can earn our our ways to you or earn your pleasure or earn our way to heaven. That's impossible. But Lord, I do believe that the more we consider your word, the more we attempt to, to live by it, there's more blessings and there's more richness in our relationship with you. I believe that we can only gain by attempting to hold the highest standard of what you say. And Lord, forgive us when we've neglected or ignored or watered down other parts of your word to make life just a little easier, a little more convenient. Forgive us, Father. But Lord, we ask that you conform our minds to your mind, that you'd make us more like Jesus every day. Lord, we have so much growth to do, but we thank you that you're here to help us and guide us along the way. Lord, we don't always have the answers, but you do. And you love us unconditionally, no matter what we've done or haven't done, no matter what mistakes, no matter what things we're dealing with right now. May we not forget that you loved us so much and currently love us so much and will love us so much that you want to help us and walk with us. Lord, I pray for all the relationships in this building right now. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen our relationships with spouses, that you do a work in marriages that only you can do. Father, may there be better teams and better unions. May there be better communication and 
better ministry together. Strengthen the family units here, Father. Lord, for, for single parents and others, I, I know it's not easy. Lord, I pray for a special blessing, a special anointing on those that for so long have, have had to do things on their own, even perhaps still being married, but being disconnected from their spouse. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those. Lord, may you show us your will and your desires. May you guide us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us, Father, to do what's right and to, to be an unblemished bride for you. Lord, I thank you for the sweet people and I pray that you would give us courage and strength as we walk out the doors of this building to engage in this world in a way that represents Jesus well. Lord, our lives are yours. We ask that you work in us as you see fit. It's in your powerful name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.